Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh And welcome to the next episode of the Talking Sira podcast um, Firstly apologies for the delay and the long delay since the last episode We've had quite a few things on um, and it's just just been a bit of a delay So uh, we're back up and running inshallah and I think uh, today should be uh, an exciting episode, an inspiring episode, inshallah. Um, so let's kick off. So, if we give a quick recap uh, of what we discussed last time, uh, just to jog your memories, we spoke about how the Messenger was now bringing Islam to the wider society. So, we spoke about how the Messenger's mission actually was split into three distinct stages uh, that most of the Sira books, probably all of the Sira books, speak about, um, which was starting off as the, the private stage. Uh, moving on to, which is essentially about uh, what we're going to speak about today. So bringing the core group of Sahaba and training them and making the Islamic personality, you know, embed within them. Uh, the second stage was the the public stage, when Islam was now ready to be taken to society at large, to the Quraysh society at large. Um, and finally uh, was the stage of ruling, when Islam was established in Medina as a... a a system, as a, a group of systems, the economic system, the political system, the legal system, all of it established in Medina when the Ansar gave support uh, to the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and, and the Muhajireen. So we spoke a bit about this. We also spoke about how the role of the youth, how they are very important in making change happen. So the early believers in Islam predominantly were from the youth. Um, probably uh, most of the 40 or so that became Muslim majority were below the age of 30 really highlighting to us that actually you change comes through the youth it, when any any revolution that we've seen in history uh, we've seen that the youth have had a very pivotal pivotal role to play um, and the same applies today you know the youth are the ones that have that activism and are able to make change happen and aren't willing to accept the status quo so something that we we should take on board ourselves and recognize that as uh, youthful people, the ones that have the activity, the action, the, the ability as well, uh, that we can make change occur. So today we want to move on to talking a bit about the specific stage of the of the private stage, the first stage, uh, which lasted about three years. Um, and in this stage, essentially, the Messenger وسلم, wanted to embed the ideology of Islam within a core group of Sahaba, like I said. And this took place in Darul Arkham. Uh, Darul Arkham was a was a place, a house actually, the house of Arkham, uh, where the the Sahaba, the early Sahaba, uh, were directly trained by the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam, hearing the words of Allah, the kalam of Allah, come directly from his mouth, and the Messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam explaining what this what these words meant, what it required from them, and how they needed to act upon it, and it, it just made the Sahaba ready to face any challenges that would come their way when, when Islam would be taken public. And we we know, and we will go into it more, that they had many challenges, many uh, hardships, and the Quraysh society did uh, have a hostile response uh, to the to the message of Islam. So what was Dar al-Arkam? Like I said, it was the house of al-Arkam. Al-Arkam was a early Muslim, one of the young, he's very, he's very young, um, in the teens or a teenager. And he was secretly a Muslim. So the Quraysh... They didn't know he was a Muslim, uh, and also he was very young. So the Messenger of Allah took uh, his house 
as a place of a meeting place, a secret meeting place where the core group of Sahaba would come together and learn and study Islam. And the Messenger really established the foundations of Islam within within them and, and establishing an Islamic personality within them. Um, so why was Darul Arkham selected? Like I said, Al Arkham was um, very much, you know, he was young. So the Quraysh didn't suspect him to, you know, be have embraced Islam. Uh, and secondly, he was secretly a Muslim, so they didn't know he was Muslim. So because he had these traits, um, there was no suspicion that the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam was taking all the Sahaba uh, within his house. So there's a reason that the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam selected this household and really wanted to protect Islam in the early stages. And we may ask the question, why was the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam doing this? Especially because he's being, you know, protected by Allah. Islam is being protected by Allah. Why was he acting in this way? And the first thing it is about, you know, Islam was new at the time. And it was only a handful of Muslims. Like I said, it was only about uh, 40 or so Muslims, right? So it was at risk of being destroyed from day one, you know, suffering a fatal blow and the Muslims being uh, destroyed and Islam being destroyed. So what that meant is the Messenger وسلم, really needed to be um, careful uh, about the steps he took so that he could ensure that Islam was not going to be destroyed from, from day one. That's the first point. The second point is that the Messenger وسلم, was politically astute. He was very political. He understood the society. He understood what the Quraysh were doing, their plans and their plots. So he took steps to overcome these and make sure that he wouldn't fall into the traps of the enemies of Allah. So this was another uh, way of teaching the Sahaba and um, you know allowing the Islamic ideology to embed within them without the Quraysh knowing so that he could establish this core group and this core group could then go into society with that strength and that confidence to tackle anybody uh, you know and the Quraysh could have nothing they could do nothing about it because it was so embedded within them that we, as we will speak about they were they weren't willing to budge they, they weren't willing to give up their deen even if it meant death and we'll see that many examples of this happened in later episodes inshallah so um like i said another another reason why this is important for us is that you know this methodology like we spoke about last time it is a methodology that we can uh, implement today in our lives right it's something that we it's not we sh, it's not something we should do it's something that we uh, have a choice in doing we have to follow the messenger sallallahu alaihi wasallam in every single action that we take and this is one of the greatest actions to establish islam in the realm of life so this step of being secret and being um, cautious is something that we should do you know we know there's a an attack taking place against islam there are steps that the kuffar and the enemies of Allah are taking. You know, whether it be like the secret services, whether whether it be um, the the blatant attacks that are occurring against the Muslim today. We need to have hikmah. We need to take steps that will protect Islam, but not compromise Islam. It's still we're still firm in what we say, but we're not silly. We're not we're not um, we're not idiotic in our approach. So we, we want to take the steps so that it still continues to protect Islam. And by establishing Darul Alkum as a secret place. Uh, the Messenger was essentially doing this. So w- what were the Sahaba studying in this this house, uh, Dar- the house of Dar- of Al-Arkam? Dar- Al-Arkam. What, what, what was the subject of study? What was the Messenger really um, teaching these these early Sahaba? And many have said that um, they, they were just being taught the, the ritual aspects of Islam and, you know, the, the, um, the how to pray and things like this. However, this is incorrect. Uh, first of all, Salah was not 
even revealed as an obligation at that point. So that really throws it out the window. What what he did do though, it wasn't about the rules of Islam, but it was establishing the foundations of Islam. So it was about establishing the Islamic Aqidah within the Muslims, the early Muslims, um, so that they made the Islamic Aqidah their reference point. And it was also about the fund- fundamentals of Islam, the, the Islamic belief. So understanding, you know, why are we here, our purpose, why, um, what will happen after our death, uh, the ayahs re- to do with um, heaven and hell. All of these things were being taught to the Sahaba so that it would embed within their characters, within their personality, so that they were ready to face society at large. So one of the things, I just want to touch upon a few areas in a bit more detail. So the first thing I think is very important to, to mention is that the Messenger was wanted to establish the Islamic Aqidah within them and, and really embed it within them so that this was the sole reference point um, for any of their actions. Because when they were living in Mecca, they had other uh, criterions. They had the criteria of benefit, they had the criteria of uh, you know, what the family said and, and the tribalistic structure, which we will speak about as well. So what the Messenger wanted to do is like destroy all of these aspects you know, every, every, all of these false criterias, criterions, he wanted to remove all of that and replace it with the Islamic Aqidah. So that whenever a Muslim was taking action, whenever the Sahaba were taking actions, their reference point was solely the Islamic Aqidah. What does Islam have to say about this? So what does it mean? What does Aqidah mean? It was something that was termed after uh, Islam because actually Islam then at, the, at, that, at that point, it was new. So the scholars afterward defined what it meant what the Islamic Aqidah meant, and in a simple in simple terms, uh, what it means is the firm belief that one's heart is fixed upon, without any wavering or doubt. It excludes any supposition, doubt, conjecture, or suspicion. So, really, in simple terms, this means that that belief that is so decisive that there is no element of doubt. There's no not even a little seed of doubt within this. There's no suspicion. They firmly believe it as haq, as true, and there's nothing that's going to move move from that position. So the word aqidah actually originates in, in the Arabic sense. It originates from the word al uh, akad in in an Arabic verb, which means to bind a knot. So when you bind a knot, what you really mean is that it's so watertight that nothing will change it. Nothing will remove it and there'll be no doubt within this. So Al-Akid and the Akida is this, that there's this belief is so tight that there's no faith in it. There's no, it's not belief in the sense of, um, I believe it to be true. No, actually they know it as a fact it to be true and nothing will change this. Um, the, the other term that is used, so Al-Akid is also used when settling a contract. They say uh, Al-Akid, the sale or Akka the contract, which means to kind of firmly settle that contract. And that's exactly what the Islamic Aqidah is, that firmness, that decisiveness. And this is what the Messenger was establishing within the Sahaba in Darul Arkham. So it, now that they had, you know, now that this was being established within them, that they had no error or no doubt within the Islamic belief, they were able to understand that the words that Allah, that Allah was revealing to the Messenger um, from the Quran, the Quran that was being revealed, uh, these words were absolute fact without any wavering of any doubt whatsoever. So, you know, the, the Sahaba would now take these words and act upon them straight away because they knew that these are the words of Allah and there's nothing, you know, it's 100% true. So whenever they heard these words, they, not only did they kind of 
learn it, memorize it, and and speak it in terms of they'd repeat it and to make sure that they can memorize it. But they also acted upon it because they knew, and this is what was taught to them by the Messenger Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, that these ayat, many of them are orders from Allah. And many of them are about believing it with 100% doubt. So the belief in the angels, belief in heaven and hell, belief in all of these aspects of Islam, the foundations of Islam, is true. And, and they believed it like this. So that moves us on to really what the, the Sahaba um, really did were they understood their purpose in life. They understood why they were here. And the Messenger really uh, wanted to make them understand what, their, what, their, what was expected from them, what their duty was. And their duty essentially was to worship Allah. And worshipping Allah entails many things. To stay away from the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has forbidden. To um, believe in the things that Allah has told us to believe in. To do the things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has commanded us to do. So when the, the Sahaba were embracing this, and they understood their purpose in life, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَفَسَحِبْتُمْ أَنَّا مَا خَلَقْنَاكُمْ أَبَثًا وَأَنَّكُمْ إِلَيْنَا لَا تُرْجَعُونَ did you then think that we had created you without a purpose and that you would be not be brought back to us? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying that I've created you for a purpose. It's not just to live your life and enjoy your life and um, seek to fulfill your desires. It's for a purpose, specific purpose to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so that when you go back to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when we go back on your al-qiyamah, when we have to answer to Allah, we can say that we we lived our life to worship Allah alone and we stayed away from all that he forbidden and and fulfilled all that he commanded for us to do so this really was deeply entrenched in the sahaba as we were saying and they acted upon all these ayat and there are famous sayings of the sahaba where they say that you know whenever they heard an ayah they they looked they sought to implement it in their lives they didn't kind of think about let's just learn the entire Qur'an. Firstly, you know, ayat were being revealed one by one. However, it wasn't about just memorizing as we find today. It's all about kind of memorizing, which is alhamdulillah, it's very, very rewarding. We should do this and it's not belittling, belittling this at all. It's important that we memorize and, and there are hufaz amongst us that so that this Qur'an of Allah is protected. However, you know, this book came as a guidance, as Furqan, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us in many occasions. So we need to ensure that we're implementing it in our lives. And it's not about just reading it on, in Ramadan or reading it in Salah. You know, really understanding what is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala saying to us. And the Sahaba understood it like this. They, they knew it was a speech from Allah. So they understood and, and implemented it within them. So these were supported by the ayat of heaven and hell and paradise, where they knew it to be true. And, and it was huk. So Ali subhanahu uh, Ali he once was heard saying that if I saw paradise in front of my eyes, it wouldn't make me love it anymore. And if I saw the hellfire in front of my eyes, it wouldn't make me fear it anymore. SubhanAllah. What he really meant by this is that it is so you know entrenched within his heart that this is true. That even if he had seen paradise, it wouldn't make him love paradise anymore because he already has kind of maximum love for it. He knows it to be true. Likewise, if he had seen hell, it wouldn't make him fear it anymore because it already has brings fear into him 100%. So really highlighting that, you know, even ourselves when we think about it, of course we believe in the heaven and hell, but do we have this kind of yakin? And inshallah we all should. We should all go through the proofs of the Quran and understand that these are haq. This is, this is, there's no element of doubt within it, subhanAllah. So 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, as, as we all know, وَمَا خَلَقْتُ الْجِنَّ وَالْإِنسَ إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدُونَ I have not created jinn or mankind except to worship me. And the question we need to ask ourselves, we know what this means. We've heard it many occasions. But do we really implement this? Do we really act upon this? And, you know, just bring into light some examples. When, you know, we know there are certain rules in Islam that we have to abide by to worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You know, for example, riba. Riba is clear-cut haram. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says the one who you know engages in riba, he will, you know, he will be at war with Allah on Yawm al Qiyamah for doing this. But how many of us have compromised in this? How many of us have, you know, thought to buy a house with riba and use certain, you know, we may have used certain Islamic principles, but genuinely have we asked ourselves, is this allowed? Is would this be part of worshipping Allah? Doing something that, you know, it may be difficult to rent or to do other things in terms of living. But actually, have we allowed our desires to own a house, you know, actually drive us to do this action rather than asking ourselves, is this actually allowed in Islam? Which clear isn't allowed. It isn't allowed in Islam. We all know this. Likewise, when it comes to um, our student loan, for example, you know, many of us want to, want to study and we should want to study. But how many of us have actually taken a river based loan knowingly? even though we know it's not allowed. And, you know, we all will claim that we worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and alhamdulillah we do. But do we worship in the same level as the Sahaba, the ones that we should be following, our examples? You know, that's a question we should ask ourselves. So, you know, the Sahaba really understood this, and they applied that within themselves. And the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa in Darul Arkham um, was able to, create such a core group of Sahaba who became leaders of Islam in the future and who were the vanguards of Islam. They were the foundation of Islam and only today, you know, the success of Islam that occurred after that can only be, you know, has to be a large part of it brought back to these Sahaba, these core group of Sahaba that, inshallah, when we go into the seerah a bit more, we'll speak about some of these examples. One of the other things that the Messenger did in Darul Arkham was he removed this tribalistic bond that was within the, the you know the the society from the muslims so in the Quraysh society one of the the key bonds that bonded them around uh, their society at large was the tribalistic bond and what this was is that you know the family is key the blood is key so this is what this what this is what the protection was so you know if someone had a strong tribal tribe and, and a strong bond they would have the most protection and you know whatever the tribe said they did even if it meant things that were immoral and just they did because it was what the tribe did and you know they would kill for the tribe literally so what the messenger wanted to do is remove this bond remove this corrupt bond that islam came to eradicate and you know the the muslims in the darul Arkham were being taught that actually it didn't matter who your blood was as long you know your bond the strongest bond that was that was most important to them was the Islamic bond, and the bond of Islamic brotherhood, and all of these previous bonds of tribalism and nationalism uh, should be shunned away because actually these things lead to racism. These le- things lead to the tribe wanting superiority over others, and we have find certain examples of this today. For example, in India, the Hindu nationalist BJP government of Modi, for example, they really think they're superior to others especially the muslims so that's why they have been you know this belief has been you know 
it's within these populations and this society that the Muslims are the enemy, the Muslims are inferior to us. So they don't care. We're dehumanized. So they will kill us. They will uh, not give us citizenship. And they will ensure that, you know, when, it, when the opportunity arises, that they will torture us, persecute us, and even kill us. SubhanAllah. So this is what tribalism and nationalism leads to. So what the Messenger was doing here was removing these from Islam. And what's really sad is that many Muslims have even, you know, you know, embraced nationalism because this was taught to them by the colonialists. And you know, there was a stage where it was dying down a little bit, but again, the, the colonialists have tried to rekindle this this fire of nationalism. And as Muslims, we need to recognize that it doesn't matter whether you're Pakistani whether you're Bangladeshi, Afghanistan, wherever you're from, it doesn't matter as long as you're Muslim. And the Muslim Brotherhood, the Islamic Brotherhood, is a stronger bond that we must unite together on and not have any hatred towards someone because of their nation. Because actually, that's not what matters to Allah. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created us all equal. And we're only different in terms of taqwa, in God consciousness. Not what our colour is, or the colour of our skin, or where we're from, what our tribe is, our nation is. None, none of this matters. So the Sahaba were being taught this. And it really highlighted to the Sahaba. And we will find in many occasions in the Seerah and, and, and the, the battles where you know, a Muslim was willing to go to fight his father, or his son, or his relative. Because for him, it didn't matter what the blood was, whether it was his own blood. What matters was that these were not Muslim. And the Islamic Brotherhood and the Islamic bond is much stronger than that. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ayyuhalladheena amanu la tattakidhu abaakum wa ikhwanakum awliya inistahabbul kufra ala al-iman wa man yatawallahum minhum fa'ulaika humu al-zalimoon O you who believe, take not your four protectors, your father, your fathers, your brothers, if they love kufr above iman. If any of you do so, they do wrong. You are from the wrongdoers. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is telling the believers that it doesn't matter whether they're your fathers, your brothers, your sons. But if they, you know, if they accept kufr and they place kufr above iman and Islam, then they are wrong. And we shouldn't, you know, put you know, give more status to these our, our fathers and brothers if uh, above the Muslims, even if they're your blood relatives. Not saying we don't respect them, but we don't have this kind of tribalistic and blood bond above the Islamic and the bond of Iman. So these were some of the subjects that the Messenger taught to the Sahaba. Uh, what other subjects did he uh, you know, really focus on in, in Darul Arqam? Uh, one other one was the Qur'an. The Qur'an itself, as I was saying, it wasn't just speech. And it was really being embedded within the Sahaba. And they understood that the Qur'an was from Allah and it was a speech from Allah. And the, the famous quote of Umar anhu, where he says that Do not be fooled by the one who recites the Qur'an. It is mere speech. But look at those who act according to it. What does this tell us? That this Qur'an that we have it is about action. So this is one of the other subjects that the Prophet really focused on in Dar al-Arqam. The other one was the oneness of Allah, the Tawheed. And the reason they focused on this, obviously this is the fundamental of Islam, but also because the Quraysh society, they were not a society of Tawheed. You know, they were polytheists. They, were, they, were, they had embraced shirk. And subhanAllah, it wasn't that they didn't believe in Allah, subhanAllah. They weren't atheists. They believed in Allah. 
they 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 knew there was one god in the sense of one allah they didn't say there were multiple gods but what they did do they placed partners beside allah they had their their statues uh, where they would you know have their as intermediaries where they'll go to these statues to um, as a route towards allah subhanahu wa ta'ala this is what they did so they believed on Allah, but they, they set aside partners with him. So what the Messenger really wanted to do is remove this shirk and, and, and teach the Muslims. And obviously they had already embraced Tawheed, otherwise they wouldn't be Muslim. But really embed within them that it is the oneness of Allah is in everything. Whether it be our belief and our, who we pray to, but also in our actions. And not placing others as lawmakers, for example. As we, you know, we were speaking about the topic of democracy in a recent Talking Dean podcast. And, you know, democracy absolutely is about placing partners with Allah. So we really need to ask ourselves, do we really understand what Tawheed means when it comes to these topics? The other thing Allah um, the Messenger really did was um, lay the foundations of paradise and hellfire, as we were speaking about, and, and the quote of Ali. And, and Al-Qadar wal-Qadr, you know, the, the, the divine preordainment, the... Uh, this was being embedded within the, the Sahaba. And, you know, this understanding that the, the Sahaba gained allowed them to understand that everything was controlled by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, but there was clear accountabilities for their actions. And, you know, understanding that they needed to do what Allah has required from them, knowing that they'll be accountable for this. And, you know, the stories of the previous prophets were being bought, the, the Qur'an, the, what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was revealing to them were these foundations in Mecca. It wasn't the rules, but it was the foundations to lay that strong foundation so that when it came to the rules, they accepted it, you know, straight away. As we found with, for example, when the, the rule of alcohol came, you know, the, the, the Quraysh's society, alcohol was allowed. But when the rule of alcohol was revealed, the Sahaba, they didn't ask a question of, you know, should I take my time and transition within this and be pragmatic? No, they straight away obeyed Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. They, you know, they say that the, the streets were, you know, was flooded with alcohol, where the, 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 the people, even the, the, those who had drunk alcohol in the morning, and they heard this ayah being revealed, and they were told about this ayah, they would, you know, try and kind of uh, put their finger in their mouth and try and sick out all the alcohol they had, had uh, drunk, even though they didn't have to do this. You know, the, this wasn't being asked of them. It was just going forwards that they, they cannot consume alcohol. But their love for Islam, their love for the Quran, their love for Allah, you know, they wanted to do this. The same applied to hijab. When the hijab obligation of hijab was revealed to the sisters, what did they do? They didn't ask, you know, when will I go to the next shop and find my perfect hijab and my perfect covering and khimar? Only then will I wear it. No. They, they grasped anything they could find. Curtain next to them. Grasped it. Tried to cover themselves. Because their understanding was that this rule from Allah was not something little and something that could just be um, you know, embraced and practiced when they wanted to. It had to be done straight away. You know, hear, That's what, they, what it means by to hear and obey. And this is what they were doing. And this is what they were practicing. Again, we need to reflect this on ourselves. Do we have the same mentality? When we read the Qur'an and we, see, we hear the ayat and the rules that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has revealed, do we think to ourselves that we need to be you know, practicing these straight away? No questions asked. SubhanAllah. So finally, just to kind of bring it to a bit of an end, how, how does this apply to us today? I know we've given some examples of how it applies, but 
you know, one thing that we need to recognize is that our role models in Islam is the Messenger وسلم, and the Sahaba. And if this is were the meticulous steps that were taking place in Darul Arkham, where the Messenger وسلم, was, you know, embedding the Islamic personality within the Sahaba, we need to do this ourselves. Because if they are our example, do we not want to follow the same example and, 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 and ensure that we are like the Sahaba? We may not be as great as them, but they were people too. And we can follow their their, their lives and their, and the way their paths and how they worshipped Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And we should. They were the first generation that understood Islam better than anyone else. And they learned from the fountain of knowledge that was from the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa So they are our example and they are our role models. And how do we do this? We go back to the seerah. Understood how were they being trained? How did the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa take them from being world beaters, the leaders of the world, the greatest of generations? And, you know, it's more important today when we have the education system of today where we're being taught the absolute opposite. Not just ourselves, but our children, our next generation. We're being taught certain things that go at direct odds with Islam, subhanAllah. And that's why it's important that we re-educate ourselves, re-culture ourselves, understand what it really means to be a Muslim. And what aspects of these things that we're being taught are directly at odds with Islam. You know, when... In, when we were at school, when I was at school in my age, we were being taught certain things. But now it's so far worse than this. Our children are being taught things such as, you know, LGBTQ, for example, that this is allowed. Gender fluidity. Uh, the fact that, you know, boys can have periods, for example. SubhanAllah. Things that are so absurd and disgusting. Our own children are being taught these as fact, as things that they need to accept. So we need to protect our children and ourselves from this. The fact that we're being taught democracy, freedom of choice, secularism are the, the only universal things that everyone accepts. SubhanAllah, no. For a Muslim, we reject all of these things because we're slaves of Allah. And being a slave of Allah means that it's only Allah that dictates what is right and wrong. Not our freedom, not our desires, our whims. Not man as we have with democracy and secularism. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a direct link to our action today and how we live our lives today. You know, even if it isn't the education system, it's the media, for example. The media, when, when we're not at school, when we're not at college, when we're not at university, we're being educated by the media. And what the media makes right and wrong. And our children are being educated by this as well, so we have to protect ourselves from this. And subhanAllah, the, a great quote from Salahuddin al-Ayubi where he said, if you want to destroy a nation, make adultery and nudity common among the young generation. And subhanAllah, what do we find today? This is absolute, it's a common occurrence. And protecting our children from this is very difficult. But we have to work and try and do this. And from ourselves as well, subhanAllah. So again, just to reiterate the point, that we need to follow the same steps that the Sahaba went through to re-educate ourselves and make sure that we have this foundation within us, that we are able to, you know, whatever comes our way, we're able to rebuttal and, and make sure that Islam comes out on top. And we're not in a position where we're having to compromise Islam because we just don't know. So, yeah, so Darul Arkham was this, and Darul Arkham really, uh, you know, established this within the early community and the early Muslims. So to conclude today's uh, podcast, Really, what, we, what, what have we learned? That the Messenger um, established within the Sahaba, this core group, uh, the foundations of Islam, making them ready to face uh, 
the challenges they would face and the hostility that they would face without compromising. And we'll go into many examples of this when it did happen, all the persecution, the torture, the killing. Yet the Muslims, the Sahaba, they didn't compromise. You know, the, the we'll even want, you know, we even spoke about how we want to follow this the best of generations. And in order to follow them, we need to understand what they did and embed within ourselves the same education, the same culture that was being embedded within the Sahaba by the Messenger, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in Darul Arkham. Especially in a society that is at odds with Islam, we need to do this. You know, protect ourselves and even our children. We even spoke about how the Messenger Sallallahu transformed this bond of tribalism, this nationalism, to a bond of Islamic brotherhood. That it was about whether you were a Muslim that they would bond around, not about whether you're my father or my son or my brother. Whilst these are important, if they, as Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, if they embrace kufr above iman, then we shouldn't have this bond with them just because they're our blood relatives, for example. But before closing off, just really want to highlight some of the key issues that we're facing today. And, you know, this Islamic Brotherhood makes it incumbent upon us, a duty upon us, to understand and know the situation of the Ummah. As, as the Messenger said, that he is not one of us who wakes up in the morning and doesn't think about the fears of the Ummah. This is absolute obligation upon, upon us. And what we find today in India, for example, in the, the state of Assam, the Assam state, where the Muslims, the, there's a, a, citizen, a Citizenship Amendment Act that was passed by the, the ultra-nationalist Hindu government, the Modi government, where they were basically saying that anyone, you know, that many refugees were being given citizenship except if they're Muslim. You know, this built upon the, the the exercise they took to have a list of citizens uh, within the Assam state where many Muslims, two million Muslims, that is said, were not on this list. They weren't recorded as citizens. And subhanAllah, you know, these steps that are taking place against Muslims are on its way to genocide. And, so, and, and you know, I read an article the other day where the, the person who developed the 10 stages of genocide, he, I think his name was uh, Gregory Stanton, he said that Kashmir and the Assam state, the people of Assam, they are one step away from genocide. You know, everything has happened. You know, the first, uh, the first step being, you know, the fact that um, the classification was against them. And then moving on to dehumanizing the, the Muslims of India, making them a target. The fact that it was organized by the, the Indian government. And now moving on to you know, the fact that they're not citizens anymore. Dehumanized, they're not even human. Leading its way to genocide and extermination. He said this himself, subhanAllah, in a, you know, in a public event. He said that the people of Kashmir and Assam are one stage away from genocide, subhanAllah. We need to be aware of this. We need to be raising awareness of this. Not only this, but even, for example, the Uyghur Muslims, for example. Their persecution has been occurring for a while now, for, for even a decade by the, you know by the hands of the chinese authorities and it's only like brought back to light again because of the remarks of the footballer Mesut Ozil where he's been speaking about how what's happening exposing what's happening in the state and you know calling upon the muslims to not keep quiet you know we have our duty to speak about these things and we have to respect the brother for saying this you know he's had a lot of backlash not only from China, which you'd expect. China doing this, you'd expect this. But also from his own club. From, from people within 
the state where they're, they're saying that football and politics shouldn't be mixed. But you know, subhanAllah, at least he's using his position to speak the truth. At least he's bringing it out into the light and exposing some of the Muslims and, and saying that, look, Muslim, why are you keeping quiet about this? Clear cut happening and persecution that's occurring. Why are you keeping quiet? And again, we, you know, we're not as big as these players and these celebrities. And subhanAllah, it really shows that the people in these positions, even the scholars and even the rulers, they should use their positions to bring to light these these uh, situations because it has much more of an impact. But even ourselves, we need to speak to others about this, raise awareness. And when people like Urzu bring bring this to light, we need to support him and have his back because he is our Muslim brother at the end of the day. So subhanAllah, these are some issues that, and there's many more subhanAllah, if I had uh, hours and hours, we still wouldn't go through all of them. But really bring into light that we are an Islamic brotherhood. We are an Islamic ummah. And we need to look out for each other and ensure that we're always thinking about how we make our situation better. So inshallah, I pray that you've benefited from this. Um, and please share and, and, and ensure that others benefit from this too. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Thanks for watching.